All right, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Lord God, we are so thankful for the opportunity that you've granted us, and we are so thankful for the many good gifts that you have given us. And I'm so thankful that you've given us the scriptures and proclaimed yourself to us, and I'm so thankful for Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, as we discuss these things this morning, may the Holy Spirit soften our hearts, may you give us wisdom, give us the ability to understand, and may you be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation where someone spread lies about you and you were forced to defend yourself against these? And I'm not talking about a situation where maybe somebody misunderstood what you said or, or made an assumption, jumped to a conclusion. I'm talking about a situation in which someone knowingly and intentionally spread lies about you or what you have done. I'm guessing many of us here have probably been in a situation like that. I'd say if you're over the age of three and you haven't lived in Antarctica, it's probably true, right? And if by rare, some rare chance you haven't, I'm sure you know someone who has or seen it on TV, right? In fact, this is such a common thing that we've even given it its own legal name. It's called slander, right? And slander has become a tactic in which people use, which one person or a group of people will use to destroy another person or their cause. To destroy the message, undermine the messenger, right? It's a very common tactic. But it's not a new one. It's certainly nothing that's been developed in the last couple of years. This goes back thousands and thousands of years. And in fact, I would probably guess it goes all the way back to the fall. When we first got that sin nature, I'm sure we started slandering people left and right. But it's this exact situation in which we find ourselves here in Galatians. Paul finds himself in this exact thing where he's being accused of something that is not true. And so Galatians 1, 11 through 24, is Paul's defense. He is giving his defense and providing the evidence against this false accusation. And before he can move on to teach the Galatians the truths of the gospel and the doctrine that he wants to lay out, he has to deal with it. He can't let it go. He must reestablish his authority as an apostle. And so he's going to take a little bit of time and a lot of detail to prove that the accusation is indeed false. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, that's great. What am I supposed to learn with a passage like this? And that's a fair question, right? This is not your typical passage where Paul is giving us instructions on how to live or, you know, giving us even some theological truths. It's very descriptive, very specific, but I would argue that there's a lot that we can learn from this. And we'll be sure to point those out at the end. But nevertheless, as you read it, it paints a very big picture of God and of Jesus. And so keep that in mind as we go through it. Now, we're going to break this down a little bit like a, like a court case. And so we're going to look at it like this. We're going to start by looking at the accusers. 
Then we're going to look at the accusation that was leveled against Paul. And then we're going to see his defense. And then we're going to spend most of our time looking at the various pieces of evidence that he gives to prove his defense. Okay? So let's jump in. The accusers. Who were these people? Well, they were a group of people that we now call the Judaizers. Okay, now this wasn't the name that they gave themselves. It's you know, not like it was the bumper sticker on the back of their car. But we now call them the Judaizers. And in reality, these were a group of zealous Jews who opposed the gospel of grace. They saw it as a threat. They saw it as something that must be stamped out. And they were unsaved Israelites than trying to preserve that corrupt form of the Jewish religion. And so they went around teaching the Gentiles, and in this case the Galatians, that if they truly wanted to be saved, grace wasn't enough, right? There needed to be works. And so they say, you must follow the Mosaic Law, and you must be circumcised, and you must follow all of the Jewish feasts and festivals. And so that was the message they proclaimed. We see what are probably pictures of these people throughout the book of Acts. We looked at one a couple weeks ago when we studied Acts 14. Let's look at it again here. Acts 14, verses 1 and 2, Luke records that now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Just in the next chapter of Acts, Acts 15.1, we see something similar. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so that's probably who these people were. Now, how annoying would that be? You know, you think about Paul. You're trying to do the work of the Lord, and you're following the Lord's command. And wherever you go, these people come in behind you, and they try to undermine your message, right? They try to stir up dissension and destroy everything that you've worked so hard to do. And so one of the tactics they used, let's discredit Paul. Let's tear him down. Let's destroy his reputation. For to destroy the message, let's undermine the messenger. And so an attempt to destroy the church they belittled the apostolic authority and the apostolic ministry of Paul. That's his accusers. What was their accusation? Well, it was this. They essentially claimed that Paul was just second tier. He was, um, you know, at best a second-rate apostle, kind of like a scrub. He wasn't a true apostle. Their argument was this. Since Paul was not one of the original twelve those who traveled with Jesus, he had not listened to Christ's voice, he had not participated in Christ's ministry, he had not seen Christ's face, he didn't eat with Christ, he didn't you know, sleep there with Christ, didn't travel with Christ, nor had he been sent out by Christ at his command like the other 12 had done. And so therefore, the, the gospel that Paul had received, it was from the others, and not from Christ, almost like he heard the message from the 12, they're here, Paul's just down here. The implication being then that what Paul had originally taught the Galatians was wrong, that the gospel Paul had presented to them was wrong, 
And thus the Galatians should not listen to Paul because he didn't know what he was talking about. And they set themselves up, the Judaizers, as the ones who know, and that would be their message of salvation by works. Okay, and so that was the accusation that was leveled against Paul. And, and Paul couldn't let this go. He couldn't let it stand. The hearts of the Galatians were at stake. Right? The very message of the gospel was at stake. And as God's providence would have it, our very hearts are at stake. Anyone who has received the Lord's word. And so Paul must defend his apostleship. And that's what he does here. What he gives us here is his defense and his evidence. So let's look at what Paul says, and we'll go through this systematically. Now, I have not included any of the passages here from Galatians in our slides, so hopefully you kept your finger in, in your Bible. Um, if you have a pew Bible, that's page 972. Um, of course, you can have your electronic device or whatever, but please follow along with me as I read Galatians 1 verses 11 and 12. Let's look at Paul's defense. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so there he, there he is. He's laying out his defense, and he says very specifically, that the gospel I preached is not a human gospel. It is a divine message. It is from God. But I think it would be instructive. Let's stop for just a second. What was the gospel that Paul preached? What was his message? And to kind of piece this together, let's look at various passages that Paul wrote from various letters and see what the gospel message was that Paul preached. Let's get Romans 3.23. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, everyone, all people have sinned. Paul writes in Romans 6.23 that the punishment for that sin is death. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as a result of that sin, you will die. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. The very heart of the gospel, Christ's substitutionary death and resurrection. Paul goes on in Galatians chapter 2.16. He says that it is by grace that people are justified, not by the law. And then finally, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 and 8 and 9, Paul says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. 
That was the gospel message, right? That was the message he had preached to the Galatians. And that is the message he said, I did not receive from man, I got it directly from God. Now to emphasize this, Paul says two different things. He says, I didn't receive it, nor was I taught it. Received denotes the act of receiving information just through direct communication, okay? This is the way we operate all the time. If I stop and ask somebody for directions, they're just giving me information through direct communication. Paul says, I didn't receive the gospel that way. Taught refers specifically to receiving information through instruction, and it implies a a teacher-student relationship. This is the word used prevalently in the Gospels when it says that Jesus taught the crowds. And so you have someone who's in the know, the teacher, passing along information to someone who's not yet in to know, that's the student. But Paul says, this isn't how I received the Gospel. Now, this is how I received the Gospel, right? And these are the ways that you receive the Gospel, and almost every other Christian who's ever lived received the Gospel, It's what we just finished doing in Sunday school. It's what we're doing right now. It's what many of us will do this week when we go out into our communities and work and teach our neighbors and talk to our friends and participate in our Bible studies. But that's not how Paul got the gospel. He didn't receive it that way. He was one of the few exceptions. Instead, it says he received it by revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, revelation in the scripture means to remove a covering, Right, to disclose something that was previously covered. And um, as I think about that, I think about it this way. Of course, we live in the age where reality television is just prevalent, right? And it seems like a lot of these TV shows are related to home renovations. So I'm sure many of us are, are fans of you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines and Fixer Upper. Uh, I think that was the name of the show, right? Fixer Upper. And if you know anything about this show, what they do is they, they go in to remodel a home and they take the people who live there and they send them away. And they renovate the home and then they invite them to come back. But they don't just let the people immediately see the house. So what they do is they position them across the street and they put, it's, it's kind of hard to see in that picture, but they put this big canvas drawing that's on wheels in front of the house. And as the people stand there and they look at the house, it's covered, right? They don't know what the new house looks like. And at just the right time, Chip and Joanna will pull that thing apart and they will uncover what the house now looks like. And they even call it, right, the big reveal. So what was unknown, what was covered, has now been made known. And that is how Paul received the gospel through revelation of Jesus Christ. God revealed to him what was previously unknown. It's an act of God, the Holy Spirit, uncovering truth incapable of being discovered by man's unaided reason and even imparting to that person the ability for them to understand. Praise the Lord. Paul's gospel came directly from Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to spend the rest of the time giving the evidence for his defense, okay? That's his claim. That's his defense. I didn't get the gospel from man. I got it directly from God, and let me point out how that can be. And so he's going to start giving us his evidence. 
The first evidence he points to is that his, his life, his previous life, was radically different. So follow along in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. That was Paul, right? That's his former life. And he mentions three things that go to giving us some evidence here. First, he says he was the top of the class. He was the head of the pack, right? In fact, the word advancing literally means to cut, to chop ahead. And so it's like he's blazing the path. And so if it were in today's speech, you know, his name would be the name that was always mentioned in the same sentence as valedictorian. Or uh, if you're watching ESPN, right, he's, he's on the top of the stat sheet. Or if there was an Olympic medal in Judaism, he's getting the gold, right? And he's probably setting the Olympic record. That was Paul, out in front, blazing ahead. And the second thing is he says he was driven by his extreme zeal. That was what was motivating him. It was his fuel. But notice what it says, and I think this is very interesting. Notice what it says. What was he zealous for? The traditions of my father's. What did he not say? He didn't say, I was zealous for the God of my fathers. I was zealous for Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. And he doesn't even say, I was zealous for the Mosaic law. He said, the traditions of my fathers. The traditions were the interpretation of the law, right? It was all of the rules and regulations that the Pharisees lived by over and above the law and and the standard to which they held the people. That's what he was zealous for. And I think what's important with that is if he had said, I was zealous for God, the God of my fathers, or I was zealous for the Mosaic law, he would have known that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as the promised substitutionary sacrifice to come. Because salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But he didn't. There was nothing in his life that taught grace. The last thing he mentioned here is that his goal was to destroy the church. He wasn't seeking to coexist. He wasn't seeking harmony. He wasn't seeking some some form of uh, unity. It was destruction. And there was no grace in his life. There was no compassion. Nothing in his life that would have taught him salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. So Paul's message of grace had to come from somewhere else. Next, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul will give us his second evidence, which is that his conversion and his ministry were not his plan. And I love this. And we'll probably spend most of our time on this one. Verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles... 
I did not immediately consult with anyone. Pay attention to how that verse starts, verse 15. And I love it when this happens in Scripture. But, right, Paul is charging hard in this direction. His goal in life, being driven by his zeal, was to destroy the church. He had no inclination of being a Christian. He had no desire to be a minister to the Gentiles. They weren't his plan. But God stepped in, right? God intervened. God says, no, I have a different plan from you. And he turned Paul like 180 degrees. Paul's going this way. Now Paul's going this way. Okay, and he's now ministering to the church he sought to destroy. That is amazing. Paul tells us three things here. God set him apart. God called him. And God was pleased to reveal Jesus to him. So let's take a look at some of these. We'll take each one of them and just kind of get, dive a little bit deeper here. Set apart. To set apart literally means to mark off or to establish a boundary or to separate. And in Scripture, this word is used in both the negative sense and it can be used in the positive sense. In the negative sense, it means to exclude something that is disreputable, something that needs to be carved off. In the positive sense, it means to set apart for some specific purpose, to a point. Okay, and so I have something very important for you to do, and so I'm going to set you apart for that, purpo- for that purpose. We see it in Matthew 13, 49. Jesus says he's going to separate the wicked from the righteous. Matthew 25, 32, Jesus said he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Same word, set apart. And uh, we're going to see a couple other instances, but like Romans 1, 1, Paul says, I was set apart for the gospel. All of those things mean that God had devoted him to a special purpose, and according to our passage, from before his birth, before he had any plans or inclinations of his own. And so you could say that his destiny was fixed by God before his birth, much like Samson or Moses or John the Baptist or Jesus himself. God had set him apart to be an apostle to the Gentiles. It wasn't his plan and it wasn't anybody else's plan. It's not, it's not like somebody saw him and said, boy, he's a little bit hardcore right now, but I bet with enough work, we could get him to play for the other team, right? We could flip him around, and boy, would he be good. His ministry was independent of any human intervention. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute, but I want to go on to the second one, which is, which is the call. The second thing he said God did was to call him. And this word literally means to invite Oftentimes, it's used of divine invitation to participate in the blessing of redemption, or it could be used in respect to inviting or calling that that person into a specific role or a specific job. We actually see this earlier on in the book of Galatians 1, 6. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, right? Because the Galatian believers had been invited to participate in the, mess, in the blessing of divine redemption. This is also the word we see in Romans 8, 28 through 30, where Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's take a, just a second. Let's look at a couple other passages that Paul wrote that kind of give us a, a couple different perspectives from Paul on this very thing. I mean, let's just go up to Galatians 1.1, the very top of the, of the page in our book here. Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. Romans 1.1, I made a, a reference to this earlier. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And my favorite is Acts chapter 13, 1 and 2. Now, we saw this a few weeks ago when we were studying the book of Acts. But in this chapter, we actually see God executing the plan that he put in place before Paul's birth. And I think it's just incredible. He says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to do. Same language, set apart and called. And so here we see God actually executing the plan that he had put in place. Notice also in this verse that it wasn't the idea of any of the people. It didn't come from one of the other people in the room who said, Hey, we need a missionary. Let's call Paul. We have the Holy Spirit here telling them to set them apart, which he had decided before Paul's birth. And I think that is absolutely spectacular. Note that for God to set him apart to be an apostle would by necessity require God to set him apart by salvation before his birth. The third thing we see here is that God was pleased to reveal Jesus to him. Now, Paul already mentioned this in verse 11. We briefly talked about it, so I don't want to belabor this point. But I will say that I think, um, I think it's probably referring to more than just the road to Damascus. Okay? I think it's more than just that, that, that moment in which Jesus revealed himself and Paul was saved. For Paul afterwards spent many days with Jesus, and I'm sure in that time he had told Paul um, much that Paul would later write to us. Now, I want to spend just one more second looking at some additional passages of Paul and addressing this topic. Why Paul? Right? Why did God set Paul apart? Why did God call Paul? Was it because Paul was sensational, amazing, so well-deserving? And the answer to that is no. Right? In fact, Paul, and the reason I want to look at this is Paul was very clear. It wasn't because he was some amazing individual or a superhuman. In fact, he considered himself to be the least. So one of the verses that I chuckle at, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. This was kind of Paul's reputation. He says, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. So, wow. 
Like, tell, tell me how you really feel. Um, I'm going to read, let's, why don't you flip over to the book of Ephesians, just the next book over. If, if you're using a pew Bible, it's going to be page 977. I want to read Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. It's a little bit long. But I want to do it because I think it parallels a lot of what we're learning here about Paul and gives us a little bit of additional information into his way of thinking and to his thoughts even on himself. And so I'm going to spend the time to do that. So follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 3. Also pay attention to many of the same language and the same words that we're getting in the book of Galatians. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Right, so it's even, I'm going to inject here for a second, so even the role of being a minister to the Gentiles was an act of God's grace. That's how Paul saw it. He said, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So Paul says, I am the least, but by his grace, for whatever reason, and according to his eternal purpose, he set me apart to minister to the Gentiles and be the one to reveal this mystery. And what I think is really, really neat is that God equipped Paul to do the work that God had called Paul to do. God didn't set him apart and call him to be a, to be a minister to the Gentiles and then tell him to figure out how he was going to do that or what he needed to say. God was pleased to reveal Jesus to him so that Paul was equipped to do the ministry that God called Paul to do. And thus Paul, whom God from before his birth had set apart to be a preacher of the Gentiles and whom God had called into salvation in his service, could not have been dependent upon man for his commission or the message or even be under their control. Okay, and so Paul is clearly establishing himself as an apostle set apart by God. 
All right, a couple other pieces of evidence here. We won't spend nearly as much time on the rest. The third evidence he presents is that his education was truly virtual, okay? Galatians 1, 15 through 17. Paul says, and I'm going to focus, well, I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll focus on the end this time. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. And the before me here doesn't mean like in position. It means in time, right? But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And so Paul didn't immediately rush into Jerusalem. And it would have been Jerusalem where you would have gone if you wanted to have a theological conversation with the experts of the day. Because that's where the church was. That's where the apostles were. And so that's where you would have gone if you wanted to sit underneath their tutelage or have a conversation with them. But that's not where Paul went. He didn't consult with anyone. Instead, he went to the desert where there were no people. And he spent time there in communion with the Lord. And after that time, then he returned to Damascus. Okay, so his education was truly virtual, direct from the Lord and not through man. Next, the next piece of evidence he gives is that his networking was delayed. Let's look at Galatians 1, 18 through 20. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Okay? So his networking was delayed. He didn't go to Jerusalem for three years, three years. And when he went, he saw Peter, who was really, so he saw Peter and he saw James. Now, this isn't the apostle James. This is the Lord's brother. So James would have been the leader of the Jerusalem church, but he really only saw one of the original 12, and that was Peter. He stayed there for 15 days. Now, I'm sure in those 15 days, they talked a lot about the gospel. Right? They, they talked about the gospel, they talked about ministry, I'm sure they talked about a lot of different things. But it was three years after his conversion, and for three years he had been ministering. And his time there was cut short, and so he was only able to spend 15 days, and he had to flee the city. So it's not possible for Paul to have actually received the gospel message from them. Now it's interesting how adamant he is in this particular verse And so he must have been accused at some point of being a liar. And he goes to the extreme of saying, in what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. He's very serious about what he is saying here. So his networking was delayed. The fifth piece of evidence, his ministry was distant. So what did he do when he left Jerusalem? He was forced to flee. In verse 21, it says... Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia. Okay, that's where he went. Now, believe it or not, that one little verse represents about 10 years of Paul's life and ministry. He preached in those areas for about 10 years before he went on his first missionary journey. The region of Sicilia, and I can't say that without thinking of 
the prince's bride, right? Jared. That contained his hometown of Tarsus. Tarsus was where he was from. Tarsus is where he went back to. And we can actually see this recorded in Acts chapter 9, verse 30. When he fled Jerusalem after meeting with Peter, he went there, and there's where he ministered. And he stayed there until Barnabas came and got him and brought him to Antioch, as recorded in Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Antioch is in the region of Syria, and that's why he mentions these two regions. And so for 10 years, he ministered there. That means for the first 13 years of his ministering life, he spent 15 days with two people. Okay? And so he's saying, that's not where I received the gospel. I received the gospel from Jesus Christ. Lastly, he says his identity was still unknown. If we look at verses 22 to the end of the chapter, he says, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Now, the significance of this particular piece of evidence is that Judea is the region which contained Jerusalem. If Paul had been a disciple of the apostles and had spent any time with them, it is probably true that then those churches would have known who he was. But, there, but he said, they literally don't know me. They wouldn't know me if they saw my face. They wouldn't know me if I walked in the door. The only thing they know is my reputation. And what's my reputation? People are being saved. And they hear that he's preaching the same faith that he once tried to destroy. And the result is they glorified God. Right? They saw evidence that what he was preaching was the same message, but he didn't get it from the same place. Or he didn't get it from the apostles. He got it directly from God. So that's Paul's defense. He spent a lot of time, a lot of ink, laying this out, nearly an entire chapter. And it's pretty convincing. When you look at Paul's life, who he was, and you see the radical transformation that he had by God's choice and by God's plan, and then you follow the events of his life afterwards, it seems pretty clear that the message Paul received was indeed directly from God and not by man. So what do we do with this? It's a very descriptive passage, a lot of details. What do we do? Well, I think there's actually several things that we can learn from this. I think the first thing is, let's just put ourselves in the place of the Galatians for a second. Okay? You You heard Paul preach. You heard his gospel. And you get this other group of people come in starting to confuse you, call Paul a liar. And Paul is able now to reestablish his his position as an apostle and once again get the authority that he needs to carry on. Now these people are in a position to receive the rest of the message that he has. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what about for us today? You can say, oh, well, that's... That's good. That's great. But stop and think about it for a minute. Paul wrote half of our New Testament. So if you count him as the author of Hebrews, right, then that's 14 out of the 28 books were written by Paul. 
Much of what we have in terms of our Christian doctrine and the gospel was written by Paul. And we can walk away from this knowing that what Paul received was not secondhand information. It was directly by God. For God had set him apart and had called him and was pleased to reveal Jesus to him and then providentially recorded that for us today so that we can sit here today and read the same message and read multiple books from Paul and know that that message came from Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Wow, right? What confidence we can have in our scriptures. What confidence we can have when we tell the gospel, we know that what we're telling is true. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so I hope, I hope today, as you walk away, your confidence in the scripture is bolstered, knowing that it came from Jesus Christ himself. But lastly, I can't read a passage like this and not just say, wow, at God. I, I just, it's, it's awesome what he does. That before Paul was born, he said, that guy's mine. He's gonna be my minister of grace to the Gentiles. And I'm gonna set him apart. No matter what he does, no matter what the beginning of his life looks like, I'm gonna set him apart I'm gonna mark him off, I'm gonna appoint him to do this job, and I'm gonna equip him to do it. And then I'm gonna execute that plan. And I just think, how awesome is our God? I don't understand it. Blows my mind to think about. Seems illogical to me, you know, to try to wrap my brain around it but he set him apart. And he used Paul in his divine plan. He involved Paul in that plan, and he said, yeah, I'm gonna set you apart, and I'm gonna equip you, but you gotta go, and you gotta, and you gotta teach, and I'm gonna use you to do this. But you know what, Paul? Yeah, it's not gonna be easy, and you're gonna go through a lot of trials, and people are gonna call you a liar, and they're gonna slander you, and they're gonna follow around behind you and make your life absolutely miserable. And you're gonna be stoned and you're gonna be beaten and you're gonna die. But I'm gonna use you in my plan and I'm gonna equip you to do it. And I just think that is amazing. And I gotta think that it's not just Paul. I gotta think that in some way God has set us apart to do the exact same thing. I mean, our mission field may not be as big, our legacy may not be quite as vast, but I gotta believe God is setting each one of us apart to play a specific role in his purpose and in his plans. I mean, in the book of Acts, he says, hey, he's numbered our days, he's defined our boundaries. Pretty sure he has a job for each of us to do. And guess what? He's gonna equip you to do that. And so it's up to us to keep our eyes on Jesus and to run the race that God has before us. And so Christians, I pray that as we leave here today, you keep your eye on the race, no matter what people say about you, no matter how hard it might be. Keep your eyes on Jesus and the grace that he's given you to do it. So as we turn our attention now to communion, 
So, um, you know, communion, this is our time as believers, Christians, to commune with our God. If that's not you, if what I said earlier about Paul's gospel was new to you, but you wanna learn more, I pray that you would come back and see me or Pastor Eddie at the back of the church afterwards. We'd love to have a conversation with you. If that is you, if you are a Christian, I'd suggest that maybe spend this time with God and just be in awe of him, right? Talking to him about how awesome he is and how vast he is and how his omniscience and his omnipotence and his sovereignty is mind-blowing and thanking him for that. And then reflect maybe on times in your life where you can look back and you can say, you know what, I can clearly see the hand of the Lord leading me and guiding me. I think maybe he's even leading me and guiding me into this now. So I would encourage you to do that. I will pray with us and then, um, then we'll have some time in silence. Lord God, I, I, can't, I can't say it enough that you are truly amazing more than my mind can comprehend. But I am so thankful that I have you as my rock, my anchor in this tumultuous world we live in, and that I have the hope of Jesus through his death on the cross to save me from my sins and to give me a future with you. Lord, I know it is not gonna be easy to go forth with the gospel but I pray that you give us the conviction to do it, that you give us the compassion to love those around us, and the diligence to march forward in the name of Jesus. And God, I pray that you would allow us to see fruit. Let us be able to partake in seeing people saved and lives changed. And we pray this in your name, amen.